Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and it's so thrilling to be joined today by Nona Willis Aronowitz, who is the sex and love columnist for Teen Vogue. She's the co-author of Girl Drive, Crisscrossing America, Redefining Feminism. She's also the editor of an anthology of her mother, Ellen Willis's rock criticism called Out of the Vinyl Deeps, as well as a comprehensive collection of Willis's work, The Essential Ellen Willis. And Nona's new book is called Bad Sex, Truth, Pleasure, and an Unfinished Revolution. Hi, Nona. Hi, how's it going? Not bad. I mean, so there are so many different ways that sex can be bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And we're supposed to have, like, I feel like we're supposed to have figured it all out by now. (laughs) That's what you would be made to think by, um, depending on what milieu you're in. I think that there are a lot of... um, cultural messages that at this point we shouldn't have to tolerate bad sex or that if you're having bad sex and you're still with the person you're with, you're, you know, you're playing yourself, but that's not exactly how it often shakes out. We, we are so empowered to be, to, to seek satisfaction. Like our needs are supposed to be right in the forefront of our minds and sometimes that works and sometimes no (laughs) yeah I mean I think that um the gap between our expectations for sex and our actual sex has never been bigger like people keep asking me oh is sex worse than ever and I to that (laughs) I say to that I say no definitely not it was like if anything way worse in moments in history where people didn't care about women's pleasure or there wasn't much education about what created that pleasure. It's just that we have all the tools and all the resources and all the information and all the sex experts and all the empowerment and confidence to have good sex. Um, And yet there's still so many ways that, like you said, that it could go bad. And so there's just this cognitive dissonance of, of like, oh, there shouldn't be any reason why we have bad sex or have bad relationships or have good sex that eventually goes bad. And yet we do. And it's like, what I, what I explore in the book is like, it's partially because of human messiness that that's the case and just the nature of sex itself. And then it's partly because of really stubborn, deeply entrenched cultural norms. Yeah, of course. And, you know, you you spend a good deal of the book talking about your mother, um, who was so wonderful. And she was a pro-sex feminist back in the during the second wave, a a hero of the second wave. Do do you think pro-sex means something different now? Yeah, well, so pro-sex, I think of as a proto- um, sex positivity, Hmm. like a proto term for sex positivity. And yet they're not exactly the same pro sex feminism was actually coined by my mother, um, to mean that, I mean, uh, it's really hard to, it's really hard to know exactly what it meant at the time. I know what, what she wrote in the piece about it, 
is that the discovery of of desire and um, sexual freedom was an intrinsic part of women's liberation, in short. And I think sex positivity is like the uncanny valley of the earlier term because it, it, I mean, it essentially means the same thing, but it's more consumerist. It was co-opted by people who wouldn't necessarily call themselves feminists. And both pro-sex feminism and sex positivity exist in a persistently misogynist world. So neither of them are, um, are super functional. Like I think that they're both aspirational. And if you're a sex positive feminist that doesn't acknowledge that barrier, then you don't have a very deep analysis of the situation. I think that's one of my favorite parts of the book is watching you discover along with um, your mother discover reading her notes and, and, and talking to um, friends of hers and discovering that the, the message and the person can have two different stories. Exactly. There's, I think that happens on multiple levels, right? You have this nuanced narrative we're now allowed to have, but then there's always like another, even more nuanced layer to your nuanced narrative. Yes. Does that make sense? I feel like I had a story that I told about myself that did seem level-headed and rational and not too gung-ho or activist um, making room for contradictions and um, when feelings bump up against politics. But as I discovered writing this book, there was actually a layer beyond that um, where even that was too pat. Um, There were some elements to my experience that really clashed with my politics that made me so ashamed that I didn't include them in my shtick of nuanced narrative, you know? Um, And I think that happens a lot. I think like, you know, even in my mother's era when she was writing in the seventies, there was more room for sort of a deep contradictory multi-layered female experience, but as I learned from her diaries, all kinds of other stuff was going on. And she's also, she can, she can like claim her privacy. That's fine too. You don't always have to spill your your entire heart on the page. Um, But I am surprised that she didn't write more about my father's and my relationship. I mean, my father's and her relationship because it was really complicated and it did butt up a lot of, against a lot of these contradictions. And my dad was um, by all accounts, a feminist man, but had to become one over many years. And also um, had some characteristics until the day he died that wouldn't be considered feminist at all because he was born in the thirties and was socialized in the fifties. and you know, you can take misogyny out of the man, but you can't take yes. misogyny or vice versa. Um, so I would have loved for her to really explore that. But 
but I guess she wanted to keep that private because it was her current relationship. And as, and as I discovered when I was writing about my current relationship, there was, there was definitely a limit to how much I wanted to reveal because it's still sort of happening, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. You don't want to come to any conclusions or any takeaways yet because uh, this is your life you're living. I really enjoyed your awareness that your mother was, was respectful of your privacy almost to an amount that was frustrating, it seemed. Yeah. Um, people are always really surprised to learn that she wasn't some body divulgent, um, big sister type who would talk to me about sex. Her disposition was, was actually pretty shy and reserved. Well, not shy. I, it's, it's funny. I always use the word shy because I think in social situations, she was shy, but if you did know her, she wasn't shy about telling you her opinions. So shy is maybe not the right word, but reserved definitely is the right word. Putting a premium on privacy is definitely something that went on. And as a result, I did feel a bit of a, there was a void that needed to be filled. And I think it was solely filled by my peers. And I also read a lot of puberty books and stuff like that. And I was reading <laughs> 17 magazine and YM magazine, which, you know, gave dubious advice, depending on what you were indeed thinking about. <laughs> um, and so I think I got a lot of different cultural messages. And I think even if my mom had given me advice, I might've thought she was just my lame mom and not listened to her at all. But given how much she's thought of, she thought about those topics, I kind of wish she would have introduced me to her work a little earlier and sat me down in a bit of a more deliberate way. Hmm. <laughs> and so tell me how it feels to be writing about your own life in, in, in such a context. And we, we talked a little bit about, you know, not knowing how much to expose, but um, you're almost, you're, you're your own guinea pig. Yeah, I mean, I've always incorporated my personal life into my writing. I mean, not with every single thing I write, but I often sort of report out something that happened to me or that's happening to my friends or feels relevant to my life. That's just kind of um, come very naturally to me, but I haven't ever really written a memoir in this kind of way. I mean, I wouldn't call bad sex exclusively a memoir because there are long stretches where it's just talking about history, but it definitely goes further than any of my personal writing. I think my rule of thumb about personal writing is that it should sort of have a universality to it. Like there should be a point about why you're bringing this in. But I don't necessarily think that's true for all memoirs. I think that some memoirs can just be a super compelling story and it doesn't necessarily have to be a political lesson. And sometimes I had to remember that just to make my, the memoir parts of my book feel richer and feel more absorbing. There's some details in there that don't really have to do with the political story I'm telling or the historical story that I'm telling. They're just there to make the, the scenes more vivid or, or to have to really expose more of my personality. Yeah. I, it, 
I mean, you're, you're doing so many different things in this book. And if you're trying to give us a broader background, put your stories into context, um, that is wonderful. And then you still have to um, engage us with the, with the details of your life, which uh, sounds like a hard balancing act. Yeah, I mean, there were scenes that I really had to take time to recall. I mean, a good example of that is the opening few pages of this trip that I took to France. Um, an early draft of that was much less vivid with far fewer details. And I really had to go search into my mind to remember the pavements slicked with rain and the fig jam that my Airbnb host gave me and stuff like that, um, which is not something I'm really in the habit of doing. I wouldn't consider myself like a literary writer. I'm mostly a journalist, even though, I mean, I write journalistic essays a lot of the time, Yeah, but it's different than, like I never went to an MFA program or anything like that. <laughs> I've never had any formal writing training. Um, so it was, good to sort of get early feedback of like, no, set the scene for us, slow down a little bit. You have a whole book, you know, like you, you aren't trying to get into a word count. And that's something weird about a book. It's sort of just like, yes, yours in a way that an assignment for a publication really isn't um, not only because of the word count, but it's just because, I mean, cause there's no voice of the publication. It's just you. It's your voice. Which it's is my voice, which is scary, it's like but so cool. freeing and uh, yeah, scary as hell. <laughs> yeah, like the editing process was so different. Where it was like, here's my suggestion, but ultimately it's up to you. Like, feel free to ignore this. But and I was like, whoa, this is different, man. <laughs> yeah. I I would love to get into some of the specifics. Um, I, I'm I'm mostly picking out. Um, I'm picking out things that really stuck with me. You have a chapter about men. Um, and before you get to your definition of a woke misogynist, which I think is is very much like, you say it's a wolf in a pink pussy hat, which yes. I don't think I realized that even in the SDS days, really, far left progressive men had this terrible blind spot. Yeah, I mean, I think partly second wave feminism started because of that blind spot. I think a lot of women were really involved in the social movements of the 60s and especially white women. I feel like there was a bit of a different dynamic in the civil rights movement with black women, but especially with white women and like the anti-war movement, for example, they felt like second-class citizens. They were treated as secretaries or else sort of like groupies. They weren't listened to at meetings. They were, um, they were patronized. Um, and the story that I tell in the book of the early days of the women's movement being folded into um, a protest of Nixon's inauguration is this very stark example of leftist men feeling super threatened by feminism. Basically the scene was they were, they deigned to give 
um, feminists like 20 minutes on the stage to sort of introduce themselves as women's liberation. And once they got on the stage and they were saying things that they thought were in line with lots of leftist movements at the time, men started yelling at them and jeering at them and um, cursing at them and saying, take her off the stage and fuck her and things like that. Um, And I think it was, it felt like a huge betrayal to these women. And it, I I, I don't, I mean, I don't think there's um, a perfect parallel today because I think the big difference is those men weren't calling themselves feminists. They were calling themselves leftists, but they weren't co-opting feminism and then turning around and being misogynists. I think that's like something that happens now that's even more insidious and hard to pin down. Um, But it, I think it does, it did evolve from that cognitive dissonance of the sixties. I mostly think of the, the leftists now who uh, have that blind spot, I mostly see them on Twitter. <laughs> that's that's where I- <laughs> A hotbed, yes. It's, it is a hotbed. Um, but yeah, I do love the idea that there are men who are really trying and then men who like the accoutrement. <laughs> yeah, and you don't always know which is which and sometimes they can be the same dude, depending yeah. on the phase that they're in. Um, I really do believe that people can change and that people can respond to cultural moments positively. I know I have in other ways. Um, so I do end that chapter on a somewhat hopeful note of sort of like, there are some men out there that really do want to be good allies and build lives with the women that build lives with the women in their lives, I guess. And um, this is like ed- a little edited, right? Like, I yes, can, yes, I can we're, yeah. Let me let me rephrase that. There are men. There are men out there who want to be good allies and who want to be equal partners to the women in their lives and to support their sisters and their female friends and things like that. I mean, they might fail sometimes, right. but the desire is genuine. And then I think there are some men who think that they feel that way and then find themselves doing sexist things and not even realizing because there aren't people who are sitting down and telling them that they're doing those things. There's a big spectrum, you know? Then there's, I guess, some guys who are like really calculating and sinister about it, but I don't think that they're the majority. No, I think it's people everyone likes to think they have good intentions (laughs) yeah yeah and I mean I'm sure I've done something I've done something racist or transphobic before and for sure not even realized it and nobody ever said anything to me and I could be anonymized my god and and I could be an anonymous (laughs) sorry I'm trying to like um you're doing great I'm trying to think of exactly how to say this like I could have been a character in somebody else's piece about a well-meaning white woman or something oh, like sure. that. Um, and I, I think I have always appreciated these moments of people fronting me gently about these things rather than just 
smod like smiling and nodding and letting the moment pass them by, you know, because I think a lot of women do that with men. I know that I do. And then there have been a few times when I confront them and even if it doesn't sink in, I'm always kind of glad I did it. I feel like that's such a good reminder too, because I don't do it enough. And you talk a lot about restorative justice and 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 how important the idea is that people are capable of being better, of doing better. Yeah, well, there's an example um, of Loretta Ross, who is an amazing reproductive justice activist, working at a rape crisis center and getting a letter from a guy in jail who was there for rape and asking, can you help me? Can you help me understand this paradigm? Um, you know, now that I'm in prison, I rape men. I used to rape women and now I'm still raping and, and prison has not helped. And at first she balked and was like, what? No, I'm not going to waste my energy on helping you. I'm here for the victims. <laughs> but yeah. then she took a second and said, wait, this is actually good. This is a man reaching out and wanting to have a dialogue and do better. And she and a few of her colleagues ended up going to the prison and helping them um, form this group called Prisoners Against Rape. And um, it really had a huge impact on a lot of those men's lives. And that was just like the generosity of that example. You know, a lot of people say like, oh, it's not my job to teach you. And like, I don't want to expend energy on that. And like, fair enough on an individual level. But I think in general, some of that has to happen if we're going to expect people who oppress us to understand where we're coming from. For sure. And then another part of, of the book that I really enjoy is the idea of all of these sexual either decisions or preferences or whatever you're going to call it um the idea that they have an inherently political meaning um and how sometimes that political meaning um is the idealized version and the actual practical on the level um enactment of such things is just way more complicated. I mean, yeah, always. It's, it's so difficult to live your politics. And sometimes it's not even desirable to live your politics. Like I think you are an activist and therefore you have to have this clear kind of simplistic message and that can be very effective, but it doesn't always translate into real life. Real life is just a lot messier. And I, I know that sounds kind of like a truism, but it's actually a really important thing to remember while being an activist and, and while trying to advance your political agenda. You're not just gonna magically change people's behavior by you know, explaining what should theoretically happen, you know? Yeah, another thing that I would love to talk to you about though is the feeling of jealousy <laughs> and yes. um, I, I was just really taken with the idea that there is a cultural reason for that feeling as well. Even if you are in a, an open relationship, no matter like 
there, there, that's still my biggest fear, I think, is like feeling that level of jealousy. And you describe it so well too, the feeling in the gut and the- Yeah, well, you're not alone. I think a lot of people are very afraid of feeling jealousy and exposing themselves to jealousy, um, which is really, as I say in the book, a composite emotion that can be- Right. The fear, it can be feelings of inadequacy. It can be envy. It can be um, insecurity. There's all kinds of forms of jealousy. And I think that, yeah, we, I felt it very viscerally in my body. I think a lot of people do, but that doesn't mean it's a natural feeling. It's a totally socialized, socially constructed feeling, just like, just like every other kind of culturally specific thing of just like, I mean, of course, there's the basic emotions like anger and sadness and happiness and things like that. But when we feel those things are totally socially constructed and jealousy is no exception. And I think that people think of certain things as intrinsic, like, of course, you're going to feel jealousy. Your pride has been hurt. It's like, well, what's pride? Pride is very socially constructed. What do you mean by pride? Like, why would your pride be hurt? Um, You know, like intrinsically, I think it's more like, your pride is hurt because we've been taught that anything less than monogamy is making a fool out of you in some way or disrespecting you in some way, even if you have um, an agreement um, that you've intellectually, you know, constructed with your partner, you're still socialized in like a monogamous supremacist society. And so of course you're going to feel those things. Yeah. And, and, one of the great things about the book, of course, is that you break down all of these norms. We, we, we have like, it's 2022 and still to like, we, we are meant to be in heterosexual marriages, every single last one of us. And uh, yeah. it's, it's really hard to, and then I am in one and I love it. And that's valid too. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you say we're all meant to be in heterosexual marriages. I think that if you're queer, that's like more and more accepted. But as long as you're in a sort of relationship that looks like marriage, that's the thing about marriage is that it's it's proven itself so much more important than heterosexuality because like, look what's going on in the Senate right now. like. They couldn't secure abortion rights, but they might secure same-sex marriage. And I think that's because it's a fundamentally conservative institution hmm. that just like now has more members <laughs> that now has gay people in it. You know what I mean? And sure. the same with the military. I think that at the time that same-sex marriage was granted by the Supreme Court, I think a lot of queer people felt ambivalent. Like on one hand, it's a very important civil right, but the fact that it is a civil right, it's kind of galling. It's like, why should I only get those rights if I'm married? And it sort of erases these alternative ways of, of coupling up and loving people basically. Um, and I think it's kind of a scary thing to say that as a hetero person who's always had the right to marry. But I, I, I mean, I found a lot of, a lot of gay and queer people saying as much. So I agree with you that, you know, if you want the most social acceptance possible, you'll, you'll be in a heterosexual marriage. But if you're gay, the easiest way to be accepted is to like be a Pete Buttigieg about it, you know? 
Oh my gosh, yes. And, and so this brings me to the last point, which is of course, of course your penultimate chapter is about abortion and, and where, where abortion fits into all of this discussion. And um, that fucking blew up. <laughs> Dude, I mean, I saw the writing on the wall when I was finishing the revisions to this book because it was September, 2021 when the Texas law came down and the Supreme Court didn't um, didn't freeze it, didn't do anything about it. I was like, okay, by the time this book comes out, Roe v. Wade will likely fall. I knew it, you know, um, there's a there's a footnote in the book saying this, you know, that at the time of this writing, this was still pending. Um, and I already felt so angry at I mean, of course, the conservatives who made it happen, but also the supposed liberal people who just can't talk about abortion. Um, they can't, I mean, even now, it's still happening. Say the there. word, <laughs> our Say president. The word. And I mean, the stuff that's happening with mi miscarriage care and everything is horrific, but I see a lot of people out here being like, it's not about abortion. It's about people who are having legitimate miscarriages. And I think people are really afraid to talk about how abortion has created opportunities and pleasure in people's lives. It's not just, you know, a state of emergency that matters. It's also what, what the lack of a child in someone's life has meant to them. Um, and I still feel like we really, the whole chapter is about um, telling abortion stories and being frank about, um, about abortions and your experience with them. And I still feel like we're struggling with that and we'll continue to struggle with it. Still gotta do it. Um, Nona, this was so lovely. Before we go, would you like to recommend a couple of books for us? Sure. So I'm going to recommend two books, one that just came out. Um, Emma Straub's This Time Tomorrow has been an uncannily uh, pleasurable read for me. I just had a baby three months ago, and so I've been kind of struggling to get snatches of reading time. And this is the only book where I really feel like I can devour it in 20, in 20 minute stretches. And granted, I am a New York City woman who grew up around the same time as Emma Straub. And so everything she's writing about just feels so familiar. But and so this, I really appreciate the specificity, but it's also just a really great story and a great summer read. And the second book I'm gonna recommend was one of the books that I found really instrumental to my book that's like not a classic yet, but should be. And that's Jane Ward's The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, which came out a couple of years ago in the dead of COVID and the 2020 election. It was like a real low point for me personally. And I was writing my chapter about heterosexuality and it really, it was one of the aha moments I had while writing this book. Basically, Jane Ward, who's a queer, pretty radical writer. It, this is kind of an academic book, although she's a very good writer. She makes the point that, you know, radical queers throughout history 
have gone out of their way to pursue their own desires, not only because as a queer person, you kind of have to, because you have to go outside the default, but also because it was politically important to them to pursue happiness outside of heterosexuality. And she posits that heterosexual people should do the exact same thing because often they're sort of um, grudgingly dating the opposite sex and saying stuff like men are trash or like heterosexuality is, is doomed. And it's like, well, what are your true desires? Why are you shitting on your desires? Why don't you actively pursue what will make you happy and articulate why these things will make you happy. Um, and that was really helpful to me, both personally and narratively in this book. So I highly recommend that book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. I love that you were able to wrap up your book and that book into one last <laughs> perfect soundbite. Thank you so much, Nona. Thank you so much, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.